This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the show. Once again, although not as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. I refer, of course, to the fact that my tenure as Dear Prudence is uh, soon to be coming to an end. I will be riding off into the sunset and another Dear Prudence will come and take my place once the pod is fully ripe. Um, With me in the studio this week is Anna Sale, the creator and host of Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast from WNYC Studios. Her new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, will be published on May 4th. Uh, This is a rare three-peat experience. Usually, if somebody's on the show three times, they're my wife. So I'm very excited to have someone I'm not married to, (laughs) but who can sort of speak to the the history of the show back around in the studio. Anna, welcome. Thank you. What an honor for my three-peat. Thank you for having me. And and especially at this time of transition for the show. I'm so glad we get to do this one last time together. If this show had a theme, it would be always transition, particularly on the air. We were just talking about, uh, before we started recording listeners, about how uh, someday, someday when I'm spiritually stronger, I will go back and take a listen through the archives to sort of get a sense of um, when my voice started to uh, drop on the air. Uh, But I have very fond memories of sort of agonizing, like, how can I take testosterone? My voice will change on the air and people will hear me and they'll know. And then mostly what just happened was people said, hey, kind of sound like you have a cold for like a year. That's it. If anyone, by the way, if anyone's listening to this episode and they've been thinking about, gee, I might like to go on testosterone. Trans people, by the way, not just like if you already have a bunch of testosterone and you're thinking of adding to it. I don't have much to say to you other than good luck, talk to your doctor. But so often the fear is like, oh God, it'll be an overnight switch and everyone will freak out. And um, that might happen. Your your, your mileage may vary, but I think it's a lot likelier actually that just people will think you kind of have a cold for a long time. So if you want to just fly that one under the radar, give it a go. Hmm. Can you skip meetings then? Oh, this cold just can't, can't shake it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I was just thinking in the context of now saying like, hi, sorry, I have a cold isn't quite the the sort of like casual response that it once was several years ago. Yeah. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm okay. I, I uh, am one vaccine shot in. I have another one coming soon. Congrats. Interested to see how the world has changed. Yeah, I am too. We got to get rid of those damn vaccine patents. First of all, that's that's the first change we got to tackle. Um, I guess the second change that we've got to tackle is the following five or six people who have problems. Do you feel up to the task? I do. Thanks for having me to do it. I did try to find the most difficult things that it was possible to talk about. They are really hard, these questions. I was like, oh, God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's just the way that it works. You know, all the easy ones go into the live chat because I can answer them in five minutes. And then anything that I think, ooh, that's going to take more than five minutes, I save for you. But I will, I will ease you into it. I will read our first letter. Okay. The subject is tricky academic relationships. Aren't they all? Dear Prudence, About three years ago, I got my PhD. The graduate program was very dysfunctional. 
Due to several retirements, we had high professor turnover, and the new professors were not very good. Some of the students' experiences were so bad that a group has gotten together to consider suing our department. They've asked me if I want to join the lawsuit, and I am very torn. My advisor was really supportive, but definitely did things that caused a significant amount of stress. Because of the arbitrarily fast writing schedule she designed for me, I developed a chronic illness that I may never recover from. My biggest problem is that she was always very supportive of me. She was just a tough advisor. She put a lot of work into my dissertation. I know she didn't realize what she was doing was harmful, and maybe it's only obvious in hindsight. If I join the lawsuit, it will either have some negative consequences for her or permanently end my relationship with her. I don't know if any of her other advisees have had similar experiences, so I could be the only one with grievances. And honestly, I'm not sure if these grievances are normal grad school stuff that everybody experiences or things that even if normalized, people shouldn't experience anyway. There's also a chance that if one of her other advisees joins the lawsuit that she might ask me to testify on her behalf, which I don't know if I could do. I just don't know what to do. Should I join the lawsuit? Well, you know, when I read this, I first thought, oh, this is interesting because we are both, both of our spouses are academics. And my, my husband uh, advises students. So the first thing I thought was, this sounds tricky because it's pulling at the letter writer's feeling of having gone through something that, that was harmful, um, feeling like that ought to be corrected, feeling camaraderie with fellow grad students who are organizing, and also feeling a sense of um, loyalty to the advisor, even though it's a was a complicated, hard relationship. So there's a lot at play here. But I thought the, first, the if the question solely is, should I join the lawsuit? I thought, I want to know a little bit more about what is the aim of the lawsuit and what is what is the lawsuit? Is it to say somehow like as a, you know, consumer lawsuit saying you didn't deliver on what you promised us and we gave you serious money for this graduate program and instead we received harm? Or is it to you know, is it to get personal damages? Is it to cause changes at the institution so other grad students don't go through the same thing? I want to know a little bit more about um, what is the intention of the lawsuit and what would the letter writer get out of it? And those are all questions that we don't have answers to right now. But the other thing I wondered about was, you know, it sounds like this is also about the letter writer's pretty conflicted relationship with the advisor, feeling both like the advisor was tough and was a good advisor, but also that um, it caused a chronic illness the way the, the advising happened. So the thing that made me think about was how, I don't know, like it's, I have, I have observed from, from my husband's experience that going through a PhD program, you sort of have this like weird Oedipal thing that happens where you're advised by this advisor who has this sort of parent role. And at a certain point, you sort of come to all of a sudden, you're their equal with a PhD, and then you have to figure out your own career and your relationship to this person who did have this um, very clear power relationship over you. Um, so I, I wanted to, to, to know if the letter writer felt like they could go back to their advisor and say, can, I, can we talk about like, what this was like for me? Um, and, and that might get at some of the stuff that seems to be tugging at the letter writer outside of the context of a lawsuit. 
Yeah, I, I think that's really helpful is to think about both. Yeah, who who are the other students planning on suing? Is it the department writ large? Are they planning on like co naming as co-respondents individual advisors? Is it possible for you all to join in a class action lawsuit and also individually add your various advisors? I don't have the answers to that. And so that would be questions worth asking the other students. Um, some things may or may not be possible to do simultaneously. So it may be that in that conversation, you will either find you would not be able to join them or uh, you would have to split up that lawsuit at some point, which might influence your decision. Presumably, also, you would be attempting to show damages of some kind. Um, and so one of the things that a lawyer might ask of you is, what steps did you take throughout the process to attempt to address these issues? So did you speak to your advisor about the problems with your schedule, for example? Did you consider leaving the program? Did you um, speak to your department chair? Did you ask either verbally or in writing for a different schedule? Um, did you consult with your, you know, um, if your university has like a center for students with disabilities needing accommodations, did you contact them? Is there any record of like a, a medical trail of when you received your diagnosis for your chronic illness, um, whether or not you and your doctor discussed the way in which you felt that it was connected to, to your writing schedule. Um, none of which, by the way, is to say like, you better make sure you have everything lined up or you shouldn't even consider it. Simply, those are again going to be really salient questions. Um, and you may find that as you speak to a lawyer or as you reflect on gosh, I actually never said anything about this to my advisor. I never considered leaving. I never tried to go up the chain. Um, she had no idea that I didn't like this. Um, I kept it to myself. A again, not that that means you can't possibly consider any other form of redress now or that you ought to blame yourself, but that might make your case more difficult. Um, I did also do like a light Google investigatory dive into the sort of history of graduate students suing their departments. Uh -huh. It looks like it, it does happen. I hadn't heard of it much. Yeah. My sense was that they're often settled out of court and that people sign confidentiality agreements. So usually the terms of such agreements are not um, disclosed publicly, but it does happen. Um, and there is a sort of collective understanding of like what's court precedent on student rights, especially as it comes to um, academic advising, some of which include right to fulfillment of promises and verbal promises by advisors, right to a continuous contract uh, during a period of continuous enrollment, right to notice of degree requirement changes, and right to protection from arbitrary or capricious decision-making. Again, you'd want to spend a little time going through the precedent to see what courts um, usually consider arbitrary or capricious, but um, you may learn more about um, the precedent there, the history there, whether or not your situation resembles other successful court cases, and that might influence your decision one way or the other. I'm curious if you noticed, are those lawsuits a fairly recent development? Because one of the things I thought was like, this letter seems to be picking up on, you know, just we expect different things from our institutions as far as like how we ought to be treated in the environment that we are asked to work in. And it's interesting that, I mean, I, I wonder if if part of the relationship with the advisor that is complicated, who knows what the environment was when the advisor was coming up, but the sort of idea of like, you know, having an abusive advisor was part of what toughened you up and got you through the system. And now there's this change in norms and what we expect and tolerate, if that's also something that's happening. 
Yeah. I, um, again, this is a pretty cursory examination. Um, I, I saw a number of rulings from the 70s, a number from the 90s, a handful from the mid-aughts. I think the most recent one I saw was Kaplan and Lee 2011, um, which determined uh, the student's right to notice of degree requirement changes. Seems reasonable, um, I feel. Yeah. Um, so there, you know, there are, there are rights, you know, the court does not simply always defer to the institution, but, um, uh, it it would be worth again, speaking to a lawyer and saying, you know, if these other students didn't receive a PhD and they're suing for damages or for reinstatement of their degrees and you did get one, it, it may be a little difficult for you to add your case to theirs. And so I guess the sort of other question I would have for you, letter writer is, is there anything that happened in between considering joining a lawsuit and getting this new advisor? Did you ever share your thoughts with your advisor? Did you ever consider your other options? Did you ever seek redress at the institutional level? And if not, it might be worth not, again, not saying like, well, you didn't do anything about it at the time, so you just have to suck it up now. But that might make a case slightly more difficult. um, And it might be worth asking, you know, what might I have done differently in the past? And and I know that can be a loaded question. I don't say that to be like, how could I have saved myself and just fixed this problem on my own? Just as neutrally as you can without trying to beat yourself up, look for, were there other opportunities in between not saying anything and considering joining a lawsuit that might have gotten me what I needed? Because, mm. you know, that, that bit about she was always really supportive. She doesn't, she just didn't realize what she was doing was harmful. Maybe it was only obvious in hindsight. W- one question that that raises for me is, did you ever tell her that this was harmful? I mean, again, you may not have realized all of it in the moment, but if she was supportive, did you have a conversation? And, um, you know, since there's some ambiguity about part of me wants to preserve our relationship, I do agree, letter writer, with your assessment that if you join a lawsuit, um, potentially naming her uh, as a respondent, and you have never broached the subject with her before, I do agree that that will end your relationship. I don't know if it will have negative consequences for her. I don't know that a court would rule in in the student's favor, but I I, I do agree that it would probably make an ongoing relationship more difficult. So, yeah, I, I guess this is all just to say, Anna, I, I appreciated your suggestion that do you simply want to talk to her on your own behalf, not in the sense of you were the worst and you intentionally caused me harm and I want you to feel bad forever. But this was something that in retrospect was really, really damaging. And I wish I had flagged it sooner. I also wish you had noticed it sooner. And I hope you don't do this with your students now. That might yeah. also be a, a useful option to consider. Yeah. And then you could still decide to join the lawsuit. But I do think that that relational aspect to it is important because there does seem to be some ambivalence and mixed feelings from the letter writer. Yeah. And certainly, if you do join the lawsuit, you cannot also testify on her behalf. Um, (laughs) And also, if you don't join the lawsuit and she asks you to testify on her behalf, should it come to that? Should someone else name her as a co-respondent? Should it get that far um, instead of they settle out of court? You could decline. Um, Again, most of these do seem to be settled out of court. So I I think the odds that you would ever be called to testify on someone's behalf in a courtroom are rather low. But I I think I'm I'm veering into like, I watched a lot of episodes of The Good Wife territory, so I don't want to make any more legal (laughs) predictions about whether or not you will go to court. Yeah, fundamentally, I think the question to ask here is, do I think I would be better served by joining this lawsuit? Do I think that this lawsuit could give me something that I don't currently have? 
you may need to talk to a lawyer to get answers to those questions. If you think that it would benefit you to join a lawsuit, you can consider it. You know, uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my last thought here is try to learn more and then decide if you think it's worth it. If you decide that it would not be worth it, that's reasonable. If you decide that it would be, you can do it. Also, I think like would it would it be worth it for you? And then also the outcomes of a lawsuit, would that give me the remedies that I want, you know, that I that I envision? Will it make the institution right. stronger to so students going through this program in the future won't have the same situation? Will it just result in an already sounds like strained institution having to pay out damages and um, not actually changing the systemic issues at at work here. But maybe you could use those damages. I don't know what true. what kind of treatment this chronic illness requires, but it's possible that that could help um, offset some medical bills. So that's definitely one reason to consider pursuing it. That's true. But yeah, good luck. Write us back if you get the chance. I would love to hear, you know, what you are able to learn from these other students and from any um, any lawyers that you're able to talk to. Would you read our next letter? Yes. Subject. My wife is giving away all our money for, quote, emotional labor. Dear Prudence, my wife and I are both graduate students paid stipends for housing, but not enough to really live on. We've taken out student loans and also received some help from our parents. We have a small apartment, secondhand furniture, and don't take vacations or dine out. This has worked well for us. However, my wife has started spending significant amounts of our money to support people she meets on Instagram. These quote-unquote influencers are primarily people of color who create Instagram posts then ask for followers to Venmo them for quote-unquote emotional labor. This is frustrating for me. First of all, emotional labor is the labor required to fake emotions in customer service roles like flight attendants or waitstaff. These influencers aren't even using the term correctly. Second, I feel like this is playing on my wife's white guilt, and as she spends more time online, she feels worse and worse about the state of race in America. She has started becoming less engaged with me and other people IRL in favor of getting an endless DM wars on Instagram. She's spending nearly $150 per month on other people. I have no idea how they use this money. I've tried talking to her about this, but we get nowhere as she insists that we are quote unquote wealth hoarding. If we had enough money to cover our own expenses, I'd be happy to budget for individual and joint donations, but we just don't have it right now. This fight keeps coming up and makes me wonder if we're actually compatible in the long run. What can I do to get her to stop this or at least rein it in? I almost don't know where to start. Um, the money I, I get, but then the whole thing of my wife spends more and more time online and she spends less time with me and our friends also seems pretty huge. I, I, I think that there's a lot of judgment here on, on who, on a perception that she's aligning herself with people who he thinks she ought not to be aligning herself with. And the letter writer believes that the wife is being is is uh, being made to feel worse by participating in this, and also experiencing more white guilt because of it, and also is deluded about their particular financial position because she says he the letter writer uses quote unquote wealth hoarding in quotes. The thing that I first thought about when. I read this letter was, um, it's clear that there is a real difference in perception between them about whether they have enough to give to other people. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that gets at a really basic question that 
comes up in lots of relationships where you share money. And that is like, let's get clear on what our money is for if we're sharing it. Like, how do we view money? Because there's lots of ways that people are raised around money that are different. Um, Some people are raised with this idea that the reason you want to have money is to share it with others, or there's this sort of, maybe there's a collective feeling of well-being and there's a lot of money going in between siblings and extended families because the thought is, this is what we do. This is what money is for. Or maybe you grew up in a family like mine where it's all about individual achievement and trying to stave off risk and building stability. And if you have any money at all, you should be putting it in a savings account because who knows what catastrophe is going to be coming down the line. Um, So that's really a different way of moving through the world when it comes to money. I, it sounds like there's a real difference here in, in how they view, um, how they're oriented uh, to the rest of the world and whether they have an obligation to share. So that's one, one set of questions that I think they mm-hmm. need to talk about. Then there's other things, <laughs> which are, yeah. the letter struck me as very dismissive. Let's see. Oh, yes. My wife is giving away all our money for quote-unquote emotional labor. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a very generous interpretation of what the wife is doing here. The wife is being motivated politically to give money to others because of what she is noticing and experiencing um, partially online, but partially from participating in America in this moment. And to sort of dismiss it as um, paying for other people emotional labor, as opposed to sort of being activated politically to think about where capital concentrates and where it doesn't. Um, is another thing that I would advise them to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I can certainly appreciate um, feeling hesitant um, about saying somebody who is whose whose sole political engagement or primary political engagement is making infographics on Instagram, and then say, you know, like saying to support this work, Venmo me. Um, <laughs> I can absolutely understand why somebody might look at that and say nice grift you got there. Um, I'd rather donate to a bail fund or a mutual aid or someone raising money for a specific purpose. That that strikes me as a reasonable response. I don't know what these Instagram posts are. I don't know if these people are also like involved in local activism. So I don't want to assume that they are the type who are just like, you know, here's a curated reading list. Now send me money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you are, you have identified an issue here, which is Part of the problem is that he he wants to intervene in the types of people or the types of organizations that his wife wants to give money to. But there's also this question of it doesn't sound like he wants to give money to anyone. So it's a little tricky. It'd be one thing if he were to say, I want to talk about budgeting for this. Um, I want to talk about the possibility of like giving to a local bail fund um, or to a mutual aid um, or to specific organizers whose work we trust and who we have some sense of like transparency about ways in which that money gets used. I do think there is also value in simply giving money directly to people. but you know, if, if your thing is, I don't want to give away any money at all until we have such and such money in the bank, that's a more difficult place to negotiate with her from. So I, I would advise you to think of, is there a smaller number that is less than 150 and greater than zero that you and your wife could try to compromise on? Um, and that you could say, we are going to put that consciously into our budget every month. So it is not simply when I have spent six hours on Instagram and I feel really, really bad, I want to Venmo somebody money, but it is a decision that we talk through and we, you know, think according to our own values and things that matter to us. And then we plan ahead for it. And it's something that we 
do uh, with, you know, avowal and awareness. Um, that seems to me to be probably the best way through this. Not just like, hey, these people are usually emotional labor look wrong. You're being played. You're you're being a mark. Um, and you're not actually helping the causes that you think that you're helping, which I think would make her increasingly defensive. Yeah. And I just also would like to note to the letter writer, I think people use emotional labor in a lot of different ways. And more than just your definition is correct. <laughs> I, I don't think of that term as just meaning the work that's required of service workers. Um, I think that that was another dismissive point that I think it, it would be worth like talking about. Because I do think that's an interesting thing that we is important that we're talking about more in our capitalist society, like what is labor? What is emotional labor? How does it work in our household, for example? You know, you could open up this stuff a little bit more. And the the other question I had was like, you know, it seems like there's been a very, you could open up the question of like, maybe we ought to have some money that's separate from between us um, so that, you know, the wife has some money that she, that she can do with it what she wants without having to get get the letter writer's approval. And letter writer, you could use money, you could use your little share of your own money in your own way, or you could separate your finances completely. Like, um, you know, I do think for some people who, if you're taking on student loans and you have debt, like, I don't want to minimize for some people that's very challenging emotionally. And so the idea of not tending to that whole could bring up a lot of stress for you in a way that like you're you're not really even aware. And so you see your wife spending money in ways that you wouldn't choose to, and you feel like she's making your anxiety about debt or money anxiety even worse. Like, I think that's worth talking about. Um, But I don't think you have to necessarily just share your money uh, because it sounds like you do have some differences in how you want to manage it. Yeah. Uh, You know, for what it's worth, I do think that there, there can be value in saying, you know, I specifically want to like acknowledge and build upon the like work of Arlie Hochschild, who, you know, coined the phrase emotional labor in her 1983 book, The Managed Heart. Um, she actually did an interview with, I think, Julie Beck last year, kind of talking about the, the sort of concept creep and expressed, you know, I, I think it's fair to say some ambiguity, both in the sense of, I think people have expanded the use to mean sometimes just any kind of work that I have any kind of feelings about. Um, sometimes I can understand. That's how I use it in my household. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but she had also expressed like, I, I actually, you know, this is part of my work um, that I have studied pretty extensively. And I think there's a, a pretty um, uh, limited utility when I'm talking about, especially certain kinds of pink collar jobs. Um, and so, you know, I, all of that, I guess, is just to say, I don't know that the letter writer here is coming th- from the position of like, I just really care about Hochschild and, um, you know, building granularly on the work of the academics who have come before us, or as I suspect, a certain um, allergy to concepts like emotional labor in the sense of, I don't really want to think about that, or that feels too squishy. So if your thought there is simply concept creep is bad emotional labor means nothing. None of this means anything. We should hang on to all of our money and not give any of it away until we are in a different position financially. You and your wife have a farther way to go before you can find a meaningful compromise. Um, and I do, Anna, take your point to be, um, you can, I think, fairly disagree with her on some of these fronts without having contempt for the entire enterprise of wanting to give money away to people and organizations that she thinks do meaningful work. But 
Yeah, I mean, there's a limit to how much you can talk about money and about her time on Instagram in the same conversation. So I, I would honestly, I would start with that. To me, I, I get that the $150 is a big chunk of your monthly budget, but it seems to me like the bigger deal is you say, I feel like she spends hours every day getting in fights in people's DMs on Instagram. I feel like I'm losing her. You know, I want to talk to her about that. I, I think that's the bigger thing to talk about mm-hmm. here is just... I don't want to try to set down like computer limits for you. I don't want to tell you that these things don't matter. I do think that they matter. I assume letter writer, you think that they matter, but I would love to find a different sort of like political worldview other than like you can yell at strangers on Instagram or you don't care about this. Um, Posting is not a politic, right? Like um, it it certainly shouldn't be your only form of, of support for these causes that, that mean something to you. So I think the questions to be asking her is like, have you noticed that you've been spending so much more time fighting with strangers on Instagram? Do you feel like this is the only way to like support political causes that matter to you? I miss talking to you when you are not doing this. Like that I think is the bigger conversation. I just want to give a shout out for the academic citation since both the letter writer and the wife are grad students, they will very much appreciate that. Thank you for bringing right. that. <laughs> yeah. That dimension yeah. to the Maybe Venmo um, Arlie Hoschild for, um, <laughs> for misusing her term. Um, but yeah, I, I, I absolutely, like, I don't want you to come at this with like, we should just hang on to all of our own money and fuck everyone else. But it is also totally appropriate and not inherently condescending to say to your partner, Venmoing strangers just on the basis of when you feel especially guilty on any given day is not the same thing as committing yourself to a cause and doing meaningful daily work. And maybe letter writer, that's another place where you can consider like, do we want to give some of our time again to say a local mutual aid organization? Um, That might be another compromise that gets you both off of the internet. Um, Doesn't necessarily stretch your already thin budget, but also doesn't just say like, we're going to wait until we've got ours and then we will consider helping other people. So good luck. I hope you can find a meaningful compromise there. Would you read our next letter? Sure. Subject, how to safely say I support you, but I don't need to know everything. Dear Prudence, I have one sister. She is several years older than me and has struggled with mental and physical illnesses most of her life. We've never been very close. She used to scream at me in public and private, physically attacked me with her crutches after surgery, and endangered me on more than one occasion with state services. My father encouraged me to go far away for college so I could escape the family drama. I'm now a successful adult after years of therapy and live several hours away from my hometown. My sister has never had much luck with keeping friends or a steady job. She acts like the world is out to get her and is occasionally hospitalized. I walk on eggshells around her. After ending a long-term relationship, she asked to make me her emergency medical contact. I agreed. She didn't think my parents could handle it if something terrible were to happen. I agree, but we still aren't close. My sister recently came out to me as non-binary. She still uses she, her. I told her I supported her. I think I'm one of a very few people she's told about this. But now she texts me updates on a daily basis. Some of it is fine. Like if she gets new clothes, I say, looks good, and leave it at that. But some of it is more personal than I want to know. I think she thinks we are much closer than we are. 
I want to be supportive, but some of these texts and calls reduce me to tears and anxiety. I find myself resentful that I'm always supposed to support her, but she's never able slash capable of supporting me. I'm exhausted. I want to be supportive of something that has been difficult for her, but my husband reminds me that I also need to take care of myself. What should I do? Oh, this one is so hard. Um, I, I want to start with, it is really possible, letter writer, that you may find that you cannot be your sister's primary medical uh, contact. Um, that's okay. You, you might need to put that on the table. Um, you are allowed to say that. Yeah, that's one of the things that this made me think about, which was what you're describing, letter writer, is there's a real uh, collision here between what you are feeling like you need to do to take care of yourself and what your sister is asking of you to be in relationship with her. And I think that that's one of the hardest things about family. And there's no one right answer. And so a few things that it it made me think about were, there's the path that it sounds like you're on, which is deciding I'm going to engage with her in a way that feels meaningful to her, but is surface to me. And I'm going to have limits on how much I'm going to give her. You know, I'm going to text back when she sends new outfits and say, looks good and be supportive and in that kind of like cheerleadery way, but from a distance. But it sounds like she's asking more of you than that. It sounds like you don't give details, letter writer, but um, about what, what else there is. Some of it is more personal than I want to know. You know, I wonder if that, I don't know what that's referring to, but if there are things that are just like, you know, um, I don't know. Like you could just say, I, I when I was when I was going through a divorce, um, one of my siblings was in the process of falling in love and getting married, and and she told me like, I don't I don't want to hear these these parts of what you're doing as a newly single person and what it's been like to have your marriage unravel. Like it's hard for me to hear. And I can remember in the moment, this is not the same thing, but I can remember in the moment thinking like, oh, she's not like letting me be my full self in our sisterhood relationship. But looking back, like I really respect that she was like, this is not like find somebody else to talk to about this. Like I, I, I don't want to be your confidant in this way on these things. Um, it doesn't sound like your sister has a lot of other support. So another thing that I wanted to sort of think about with, with the letter writer was you know, what are the ways that the healthcare system, the mental healthcare system, like could, could fill in some of the gaps here for your sister? I mean, I, I say that with the full awareness that our mental healthcare system is completely broken and insufficient. So that's kind of not a great answer, but I do wonder if there are ways in which you could say, um, I wonder about this support group. I saw this online. Like, what about this? Um, trying to share resources um, to build the community that your sister has to lean on to su- for support as sort of in this like, in, you know, stage of where you're kind of trying to figure out your boundaries with her. Um, that was another thing I wondered about. What do you think? Yeah. Um, my thought here is the question before the letter writer is, I guess I'll preface that with this. You know, letter writer, you don't refer explicitly to your sister as your childhood abuser. I don't want to force that terminology on you if that's not something that you want to do. Um, You can 
you know, what you have described as childhood abuse, it is still possible that you can have compassion for her mental and physical illnesses while also acknowledging that she abused you. You don't have to choose one or the other. So the question I think you should ask yourself is, am I emotionally and logistically prepared to serve as not only the primary medical contact, but also primary form of like transition-related support for my childhood abuser, who it does not sound like has ever acknowledged the extent of the harm that she caused me, much less tried to apologize for it or make any kind of amends. That's the question. Not, will she be in a difficult position if I say no? Not, who else would she get to do it for her? Not, but my parents can't do it. It's just, can I? Um, Because there are other options. She might need to hire a medical advocate Um, she might need to create a living will. I realize you say she has a lot of trouble maintaining interpersonal relationships. So it seems unlikely that she will be able to find a friend who can do that for her. Um, but whatever solution she comes up with, if you say, I can't keep doing this, she will have to figure that one out. You can't figure that one out for her. And I don't think you should have to. So I really do think you should simply focus on, can I keep doing this? Um, again, in the context of this person physically, verbally abused me as a child for a long time and also attempted to use the power of the state to harm me. Um, That has not been repaired. That has not been acknowledged. She's not apologized. So when we, you know, have these text messages where I support her, it's very painful because I'm supporting my abuser. Um, so, So my read there is really letter writer I think you should strongly consider saying, I can't do any of this. Um, If the idea of bringing back up your childhood abuse doesn't feel safe or possible, you don't have to. Um, You should prepare yourself for, she'll probably get mad about it. um, And think about what do you need from your husband and other people in your life to get through that. But you can say no. You can survive your sister's anger. Uh, It is not incumbent upon you to placate her Um, because she wants to act like this abuse never happened. So if I were in your position, I think I would decline both to be having these conversations and to be her emergency contact. Um, And then I would go think about how honest am I willing to be with her about the reasons for declining and how will I take care of myself if she attempts to lash out when I say I can't keep doing this. And part of what may come up for you as you think about that is, oh my gosh, this is going to feed into her you know, fears of persecution. It's going to feed into her sense that the world is out to get her. I, again, I really get that. I get that that might feel really difficult to contemplate, but I I would think about what do I need to get to the point where I can say, you need to find somebody else and not to worry about who that somebody else is going to be. So to that end, I think, you know, yeah, you can offer her suggestions or alternatives. I just, again, this is the woman who abused you as a child. I don't think you are in a position to help her find alternatives to you. I think this is a situation where you should be looking out for yourself. I'm really angry, letter writer, that your father encouraged you to go far away for college so you could, quote, escape the family drama. Your father facilitated your sister's abuse and then suggested to you that the easiest thing would be for you to just leave. That was really wrong. Um, He should not have done that. He should have protected you. Your mother should have protected you too. They should not have said, you know, maybe if you just leave, she'll calm down. That was wrong. So I'm glad you've been in therapy. I'm glad you have a supportive partner. I think that what your sister is doing is um, harmful to you. 
And you can absolutely wish her continued health and safety and have compassion for the difficulty that she's in. But, you know, this is the woman who abused you all through your childhood. I I just don't think it's doing you any good to um, help her manage her, you know, medical treatments. I just don't think that this is good for you. I don't think that you're in a position to offer her real support because it's coming at, at your expense. So, I think you should step down and I think you should prepare to limit your contact with her afterwards because I think you should be prepared for her to lash out. But I think in the long run, it will do you good. I have a question for you. Please. One of the things that I was thinking about with this letter was the role of the parents is, 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 I don't know what, what is behind how the letter writer described the parents. The father encouraged me to go away so I could escape the family drama Something the father said, I see what is happening to you and you need to get out. And at the same time, both the sister and the letter writer have decided that the parents are not, aren't the right people, um, couldn't handle it if something terrible were to happen. We need to both mm-hmm. conspire to protect our parents. Do you think it will help the letter writer to protect her own self and the creep of responsibility if she also were to tell her parents? Or do you think this is a conversation that she ought to have just with her sister drawing these lines? Yeah, I think your sister's the only person you need to say no to in this. You don't have to rope in your parents. Um, I think generally speaking, you letter writer should feel very, very free to not worry about how your family members are going to solve their problems. Because historically, it seems like one of their answers to solving problems is to let abuse go by or wait until you're college age and then say, hey, why don't you just leave the state? That seems like it'll make things easier than trying to protect you 10 years ago when you were being beaten. Um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound flippant. I'm just, I'm, I'm pretty angry with your parents. Um, letter writer. So yeah, um, if you decide at some point you do want to have a conversation with your parents where you say, you did not sufficiently protect me from my abuser as a child. And then you waited until I was, you know, legally an adult and you told me to get out of town. However nicely you may have tried to dress that up. You made me the problem that has had long lasting repercussions. You should not have done that. That was wrong. If you feel like such a conversation would be useful or invigorating to you, I encourage you to have it. I also really understand how difficult it can be to talk to people who helped participate in and facilitate an abusive dynamic Uh, where you name it and you're honest about it, if they're not ready to be honest about it themselves, sometimes they clam up. Sometimes they say, I don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes they say, no, 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 the real problems that your sister was suffering. So it was okay that she abused you. The, you know, the bigger thing that we had to protect her from was her like various ailments. And so that was the only thing we could have done at the time. And that might be very painful for you to hear. So again, you should feel enormous freedom to think about whether or not you think it would serve you to discuss those things with your family. Um, But yeah, my, my read here is just, you cannot keep doing this. This sounds exhausting. This sounds so upsetting. Um, this sounds additionally traumatizing. I don't have a lot of um, faith that attempting to set some limits with your sister would get you very far. I think if you were to say, I'll still be your emergency contact, but I can't text you every day about this um, pretty quickly, you would still have to be putting out a lot of fires because she would push. And I, I don't want that for you. And I just think it's fine to say, I can't help you with this. I'm the one person who's not qualified to help you with this. You know, the, the, like the thing that I come back down here to my, my founding principle here is what do you owe your abuser when your abuser has never acknowledged the harm that they caused you or tried to make amends? And the answer there is nothing. And that doesn't mean that they're not a person deserving of 
adequate medical treatment, love, support, and care. It just means they can't demand it of you. You know, you can, you can have, you can have those things or you can have abused me as a child. You chose to abuse me as a child. You don't also get these other things. And good luck. I'm so sorry. It sounds exhausting. You sound exhausted. I'm so glad that you have your husband. I think he is right. You should take care of yourself. Please take care of yourself. Whew. Okay. Those were, were, were I think we're going to stop there because those are just some thorny, thorny briars we had to wade through. And I want to take a minute and, you know, pick some pieces of plant matter out of my flesh. But, um, <laughs> Do you feel like we got to talk about hard things today? Did I, did I, uh, I really you know, feel like that was some the master curation. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, anytime you need thorny problems, uh, just come check the mailbag. We've got plenty. What, um, you know, what do you think? Not, not to say like, what's your universal operating, uh, sense of how to talk about hard things, but like, what do you think is most often missing, um, in, in conversations about hard things? If you were to speak generally to the listeners right now. If I were to speak very, very generally, it's like, it's, I have come to think of hard conversations as, um, it's sort of like two tracks. Um, there's the track of what I need to bring up, what I need to speak up about, or what I need to hear that someone is bringing me. That's like the content of the hard conversation. And then the, the equally important parallel track is what is the way in which I am sort of um, tending to the environment and the relationship in which this conversation is occurring. I don't mean that to mean you have to always be nice and agreeable in order for a hard conversation to be successful, but it's to be remember um, and to be mindful of like the stuff that is being said is happening inside of a relationship. And so that means, you know, being very uh, intentional about when you do bring up something that's a conversation that you've been waiting to have, like how to signal that you want to move into this different mode, which is to say, saying things like, I've been thinking and I have something I, important that I really want to talk to you about is now a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and letting the person sort of hear, oh, okay, I need to move into this different mode. And then it's also really paying attention is something I struggle with and really have tried to work on paying attention to once the conversation starts the pace you know what is what is reactiveness mm-hmm. um, that's happening when you're com- when you're having a conversation and what is actually sharing information um, and the way that I have tried to pay attention to that in myself and heard others when I was writing the book is just like really paying attention to the the pacing of the mm-hmm. conversation and what it feels like in your body. Um, because you know when you are in a position of being capable of listening and hearing and when you're not. And when you move out of that time, that when you hit that saturation point, hit that flooded point, um, it's okay to pause um, because then you're not really having the conversation that you intended to have or, or the best conditions to have a hard conversation because again, like the heart, the, the the objective of a hard conversation is to to sort of share information with someone in your life that's of really big importance and uncomfortable to talk about. And so the objective at the end is to understand where the person you're talking to is coming from, mm-hmm. and also to really feel like you've been honest and said what you've needed to say. Um, Maria Bamford 
read the book and she told me it made her think of the, 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 um, the comedian made her think of the aphorism from recovery groups, um, say what you mean, but don't say it mean, which I just love. Um, because it's like, it's a challenge, you know, like you better step up and try to find the words to be as honest as possible. And also think about the way in which you want to express it. Um, so it can, has the best chance of being heard. I don't think we're going to do better than a Maria Bamford seal of approval. So I think that (laughs) is just a signal that we're going to go out on a high note. Congratulations. That is amazing. Thank you. When I got that email, I was like, I can die. Yeah. (laughs) Print this out, frame it, maybe make it a lanyard, walk around with it. That's what I would do. Oh, Anna, thank you so, so much for coming back on the show. I realize I spoke a little prematurely at the top um, because I made it sound like the podcast is going away. It's actually not. This podcast will be continuing. It will undergo a sea change into something rich and strange. Um, it will shortly uh, be renamed uh, To Be Decided, um, but I will be continuing to do this show and have guests. We will continue to talk about some questions and then do a little more conversation about uh, sort of the themes of the day and their work and whatever else is going on. So um, you you will hear me again. Um, I just won't be doing the same Dear Prudence intro. And Anna, you know, maybe we can get you back uh, for the first time on the new show. Please bring your dear friend, Maria Bamford. <laughs> My close personal friend. Your close maybe, personal maybe friend. Maybe we'll make some time in our next hang, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure... I'm sure no one ever attempts to prevail upon the strength of a nice email to say, Maria Manford, would you like to be my best friend now? Um, I'm sure we're the first to to think about it. But anyways, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show and uh, good luck with the book and with the difficult conversations that I hope it engenders. Thank you so much and best of luck to you as all of these things come and grow into new forms. I'm excited to listen. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I do wish that there were more room in many monogamous marriages without saying we're going to throw monogamy out of the window to discuss the fact that crushes on other people are not, you know, the death blow to your marriage. Um, I think that some people treat them like they are like, my God, how could this have happened? How could I have developed a crush? This is horrifying and awful. It's just like people develop crushes all of the time. It is a thing that human beings do. Um, It does not have to be this sort of like horrible, awful, you know, what does this mean for us thing? You, you, you do not have to treat it as this like terrifying revelation that you don't actually love your wife or, or you're not actually a good person. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.